Good morning, Cross Point. You guys awake? Ready to study, continue in our series through the Gospel of Mark? Thank you. Somebody's awake. The coffee's kicking in. Excellent. So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 8 as we continue in our series of, of following Jesus together, wanting to walk in the footsteps of, of the disciples, to hear as Jesus speaks, to watch as He ministers, so that we then in turn can respond with humble hearts and faithful hands. This is our, our call, our desire as we walk through the Gospel of Mark together and One thing that we've seen in these past weeks leading up today is how Jesus breaks through the exterior shell that we present to others to ultimately expose our hearts, to pierce, to convict, to comfort what's happening inside. We've seen Him break through the exterior of our own sufficiency. When a few weeks ago as A.D. was preaching and and Jesus was preaching to a crowd of 5,000, and he wanted in compassion to feed them. And he told the disciples, feed them. And they're like, what do I do? Like, how am I supposed to do that here? And so they gathered five loaves and two fish. And God took their insufficiency, took what they had to offer, and he responded. That God responds when we acknowledge that although we present to everybody that we have everything under control, that he responds when we hold before him our own insufficiency. Jesus breaks through this exterior of man-made traditions. If you remember when the religious leaders looked at the disciples and they said they're sinners because they're not washing their hands like we've taught people to do. So therefore, they're ceremonially unclean. And, And Jesus looks at that and He says, what you do on the outside is not what makes you unclean. It's what's happening in your heart. And again, He's breaking through this exterior of tradition to expose the heart. And again, even last week, we saw Jesus break through the exterior of our own prejudices and mentality of superiority over others. When the disciples are annoyed and just want this Gentile woman to go away, and yet Jesus responds with compassion as she cries out. And ultimately, He holds up her heart as one, as an example of great faith. So now today, it's the practical exam, right? Like the disciples, they've been watching Jesus. They've heard Him as He's been teaching. They've watched Him as He healed. And now it's time to put everything into practice, to put into action what they've been learning. Because ultimately, faith, it's a spiritual muscle that needs to be exercised and used. If there's like one phrase I want you to remember this morning, it's that. Faith, it's a muscle that we're called to exercise, to use. So often faith is reduced to a passive knowledge about God, right? Like if we just learn, just learning more and more information, listening to another sermon, going through the motions, though experts tell us that you're probably only going to remember 5% of what I say this morning. But sometimes faith is just reduced to that, to passively observing, passively listening, passively learning more information, watching as others minister. But the Scripture in James chapter 1, it tells us that faith, faith is an action. 
Faith is, is a lifestyle. It says, for if you listen to the Word and you don't obey, it's, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if we're honest, I think we would all agree that this happens far more often than any of us would like to admit. Right? Like, we can sit here on Sunday. We can go through the motions. We can say, our Lord, he, our God, He reigns. Right? We can sing that. We can celebrate it. We can, as though looking in the mirror, behold and say, isn't that beautiful? And then we leave here and we walk into the week and we forget everything. All of a sudden, things get hard and we're like, our God reigns? I don't know. It feels like chaos. Sometimes our faith is weak and this is what is going to be exposed this morning. That faith is not just a moment, but faith is a position of our heart. It is a muscle that we're going to see that God will invite us in how to exercise and grow in in response to what we're going to see this morning. So as you're turning to Mark chapter 8, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Lord, I thank You for this time this morning, again, to gather together, to open Your Word, Lord, to not just see it, but allow Your Word to expose our hearts. Lord, help us not just to be like the one who looks in a mirror or walks away and quickly forget, but help us to be transformed by Your Word. Lord, help our lives to be moved and changed as we walk in the reality of faith. Lord, not only being hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word as well. So Lord, we surrender all of this to You and ask that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, would You move in and through us this morning. And in Jesus' name, Amen. So beginning in verse 1, in those days when a great crowd had gathered. Now just to, to get the setting, to understand what's happening here is in those days, Jesus is still in the Decapolis. This is an area of 10 cities that makes up a region, and this was a mostly Gentile region. He is still ministering at this point among Gentiles. And what we're going to see out of this is how Jesus moves with a compassionate heart. Because he saw that as this crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. And so he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a far way. That, that we see this crowd that, that has gathered. They've been listening to Jesus teach for three days. That their lunches are gone. The water bottles have run dry. And yet they've stayed. They've continued listening. And Jesus looks upon them and He sees that, that they're hungry and He knows that if He sends them home. They don't have even the strength to make it home. And so in compassion, He wants to feed them. And so the disciples are like, of course, you fed the 5,000. Let's gather what we have. You'll multiply it. This will be perfect. That's not what the disciples said. If you're familiar with the story, they freak out again. They're like, what? This crowd? How in the world are we going to feed them? It goes on, his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Like how in the world, again, the, the disciples are, 
are more aware of their insufficiency than they are the power of God. They're presented with this task to feed people that they know is beyond their means, that they don't have the ability to fulfill. God's calling them to something they know they can't do. How are we going to find enough food? How are we going to find enough food here? How are we going to do this out here in the wilderness? This is impossible. And so once again, Jesus being a patient teacher says, okay, how how many loaves? How much bread do we have? And they're like seven we only have seven, 4,000 people, and we have seven loaves and a, and a few fish. And once again, Jesus multiplies, feeds the crowd so that not only does it feed everyone, but there is an abundance left over. Seven baskets full of food. Now, some scholars have looked at this and they're like, this is just the same account. Maybe Mark lost track in his mind and he fed 5,000, but maybe it was just 4,000. But as we're going to see, this is not the same event. Even later, Jesus will refer to two separate events. Because scholars have said, how in the world could the disciples forget? Right? Like, didn't this just happen? Right? We look at the disciples and we're like, are are you really that dense? Is your faith really that weak? How in the world do you forget this? And I find that in my own heart. Sometimes, I have to be honest, I think, like, I would be a much better disciple. Like, how dense? Like, there's 4,000 people. He's already done this once, right? Why not just say, let's gather what we can, multiply it, feed them, let's go on about our business. There's part of me, ideally, that would say, of course I would respond like that. Like, how dense do you have to be to not respond like that? Until I start thinking about my life, right? This is then what happens. So I remember times when we had to sell our house in Maryland before going to the mission field. And it sold after praying and, and what we made in equity in that helped finance even the missions trip. God provided homes as we pleaded. He provided visas to countries when it seemed impossible. He kept us safe from bullets and rocket-propelled grenades over and over again. God has abundantly provided for our family. And then something happens. And what do I do? God, what's going on? My first thought is like, look at all the ways God's provided. Of course he has this. I don't respond like that. My knee-jerk reaction in the moment is to see my own insufficiency. To be like, look at these overwhelming odds. Look at this situation. And then afterwards, have you ever said to yourself, how many times do I have to learn the same lesson? Like God's proven himself faithful over and over again, but I forget to remember I fail to apply what I know of God to my present need. I think in, in reality, it can be easy to stand back in judgment of the disciples, but in, I think all of us are the same. And I think that there's an application here is how are we actively exercising your heart of faith by remembering God's past faithfulness. I think if the disciples had remembered God's past faithfulness, they would have looked at the present need and call, and they would say, okay, God, how do you plan to do this? Because this is what we have, rather than being like, it's impossible, we're in the middle of nowhere. 
At the end, I just want us to have in our mind a humility at this point. At the end of the message, there's going to be two practical questions that Jesus asked of the disciples that I believe we can ask of ourselves this morning that helps shape our heart for how we remember and how we seek to understand and apply it. But, but in this moment, I just want us to identify more with the disciples' unbelief rather than standing in judgment of them. That if we're truly honest, we would have probably done the same thing. And then it continues. There's this section in, in verse 11. Or backing up to, to 10. And immediately then, after they've been fed, the 4,000 have been said, they've been sent away, there's seven baskets full left over in verse 10. And immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthia. The reality is scholars don't exactly know where this is. It was a small rural town. And, and why that's important is because the Pharisees are going to show up. This isn't some big town where, where the Pharisees naturally were. What I want us to understand is that this was a rural town where now Jesus and the disciples show up, and the religious leaders are planning. They're pursuing Jesus. But we see that their heart is not out of humility, but their heart is resistant. Their heart is, is antagonistic against Jesus. Responded with a compassionate heart to the crowd. What we're going to see in the religious leaders is that they are responding with a resistant heart. They're seeking a sign to test him. They say they began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Can we just review how the disciples have already responded? I mean, how the, the religious leaders have responded to Jesus? Like, they're not coming to Jesus. And I don't want us to get this sense of like, hey, they really want to believe. If, if Jesus did a miracle or something, or, or said the right thing, then, then maybe, maybe the religious leaders would would respond. But in reality, Jesus has said, when the paralyzed man was lowered through the roof, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. The religious leader said, only God can do that. He's blaspheming God. When on a Sabbath day, Jesus told the man with the withered uh, hand to stretch out his arm, and he did, and was healed, the disciples are furious. And, and they leave and begin to plot in how to kill him. The, the religious leaders, on seeing all of the things that Jesus is doing, healing of the blind, the deaf, the, the lame, says, you know how he's doing this? He's doing it because he's possessed by Satan. That's how he's doing this. Why are you listening to him? And they begin to try to turn the crowds against him. And so now they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, hey, show me a sign. Prove to me who you say you are. Their hearts are turned away from him. That They are resistant to him. They are demanding something from God rather than coming to him in humility in their own sufficiency. They are coming to him in a posture of superiority over God. In his response, he walks away. No sign, no teaching. He walks away. 
This should be humbling to us as we examine even in ourselves the posture of our own heart. Like, what is the posture of your heart this morning towards God? There can be the motive of the motion of your life versus the motive of your heart. Here's what I mean by that. The motion of your life. Think about the religious leaders. Think about who they were, their activity, this external projection, right? They read their Bible. They prayed. They talked about God. They taught others about God. They went through all the motions. Jesus walked away from them. By If we were just to look at the exterior, we would say, these are religious men, right? These are good men. Look how they pray. Look how they read their Bible. Look at the things they do. Jesus looks at them and says, no, they have a resistant heart and a sign will not be given, and He walks away from them. Think about what this looks like for us this morning. Because the reality is, I'm not as concerned about your action this morning as I am your attitude. Because the reality is you can put on a projection of, yes, I'm here. Our God reigns. Yes, I pray. Yes, I'm doing all the right things. But all the while, the posture of your heart is in hostility to God. Just because I see people go through the motions does not mean that their heart is humbled before God. It may be coming from a humble heart, Or it may be just trying to manage people's perception. How would we have seen the religious leaders? What would we have thought about them? And what did Jesus think about them? And and I think it begs us to ask, like, what is the posture of our own heart? Like the physical posture. Like if I'm sitting there and you're you're talking to me and I'm just kind of arms crossed. There's a block there, right? Now, if you start talking to me and I just turn my back to you, that's a whole other kind of resistance, right? Or if I'm leaning in and I'm listening and I'm responding, there's a difference there too, right? The posture, the physical posture we have in communication matters. How would you describe your heart this morning? If you had to say it's posture, is it turned? Is it resistant? Are we demanding things from God out of our own bitterness, disappointment? Are we coming in humility and leaning in and saying, Lord, I don't understand everything. I don't have all the answers. I don't have everything, but you are sufficient. To the needs that I presently have, you are sufficient. What is the posture of our hearts this morning? Now, here's the amazing thing. The disciples are still not going to get it. There's a difference between having a resistant heart and a distracted heart. Because some can be like, oh no, like I feel this tension at times. What is the posture of my heart? Am I resistant? Is Jesus just going to walk away? But there's this beautiful reality that we're going to see in this next Part where it says, now, they had forgotten, this is in, in verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, think about what's happening right now. 
The disciples are in a boat. Twelve of them with Jesus. They've just seen this miracle of Jesus feeding 4,000. This is the second miracle where Jesus has multiplied bread. They just had this interaction with the, the religious leaders. Jesus walked away, and I'm kind of imagining what it would be like to be a disciple. They're watching the exchange. Jesus starts walking, so you're just like, I, I guess we're going. They're on the boat now. Jesus seems to be thinking about the conversation with the religious leaders, the bread, and he gives this warning to them to, to beware. Beware of the leaven. Beware of the, this resistant heart. Beware that it doesn't spread, that it doesn't permeate. It, it, he's given a warning how the voices of dissent and rejection in doubt can begin to be kneaded into a group of people like yeast into dough so that it's worked through the whole and then in the end there's this division and resistance that spreads throughout. And Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful that their resistant heart, their self-righteousness, their pride, their self-sufficiency doesn't spread into you. That you don't begin to take these qualities into your own hearts through the interactions with them. Beware. Watch out. Guard your heart. You can feel the weight of Jesus' words. And then the disciples are like, bread. Bread. I'm kind of hungry. Right? Like, who brought the bread? And they're, all of a sudden, they're like, we only have one loaf of bread. Who forgot the bread? There were seven baskets full of bread. And we have one loaf. Seriously. Nobody brought bread? This is how the disciples are responding. It's like talking to a child, isn't it? Like, Jesus just like this amazing truth and, and this spiritual lesson. And the disciples are literally like, bread. Bread. He said, bread. We have one loaf. And like verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I'm not making it up. And Jesus, aware of this, said, why are you discussing the fact you don't have bread? Seriously. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts so hardened? Having eyes you do not see. And having ears, you don't hear. And do you not remember when, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And in how many baskets, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? I imagine sheepishly, they were like 12. And, and the seven for, for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Here's the thing I find interesting about this. Jesus walked away from the religious leaders whose hearts were resistance. The disciples, they don't get it. But Jesus says, do you not yet understand? There is both a compassion and a persistence in God's pursuit of the disciples. Because I think if we're honest, our hearts can get distracted. We don't always remember. We forget God's faithfulness. We doubt it in, in the moment. 
That does not necessarily mean that our hearts are resistant. It means we're kind of foolish like the disciples. It, it, but there's this call, do you not yet? Do you not yet understand? Like I would have just been like, whatever, what is wrong with you guys? But Jesus is patient. There is an exasperation with hope. Do you still not get it? Like still? You still don't see. But I'm going to persevere until you do. Do you not understand? See, some say that that part of what it means to like not understand is, is they want to look for a deeper meaning in the number of baskets that are left over. That the feeding of the 5,000 that had 12 baskets left over were to the Jewish people. And so some will say what they needed to understand is God's abundant provision for the Jews because that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Then they say for, for the Gentiles, the feeding of the 4,000 was to Gentiles. And with seven baskets left over, that represented the 70 nations that were thought of by the Gentiles. We don't know if that was the intended meaning. But I do think what is clear, what is the intended thing to be understood here is that Jesus is sufficient. When the needs exceed your resources, Christ is sufficient. That Jesus is our hope. That Jesus is our salvation. Like, we've watched Jesus have compassion on the Jews. We've watched Him have compassion and feed the Gentiles. We see a God who is compassionate. Do you not yet understand? If I fed 5,000 strangers, if I fed 4,000 Gentiles, do you really doubt that I'm going to feed 12 friends? Like, how are you not putting these things together? Why do you believe me for great things for others, but, but you doubt me? When it comes to, to my ability to walk with you, to be present with you personally here, and you're afraid because you have one loaf of bread, do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? So what do we need to remember of God's faithfulness? There's kind of these two questions that Jesus asks, and I think this is the, the application for us. When we think about faith is a muscle, it's meant to be exercised, it's meant to be used. How do we strengthen th that muscle of faith so we're not just passively listening, but we're actively walking in obedience? How do we do that? The two questions that Jesus asks is, is do you remember and do you understand? So I, I want us to think about these questions. Like, what do you need to remember of God's faithfulness? Because we see examples throughout the Old Testament of these monuments of remembrance. Like, if the disciples had remembered God's faithfulness to the 5,000, maybe that would have helped them when they're standing before yet another crowd, and they're like, actually, I remember how he provided before. Is that what you want to do here? And to at least ask the question, but they had forgotten. We tend to forget. This is why God, throughout the Old Testament, gave various means of monuments for remembering. There were festivals. There were annual parties of let's have at specific times the Passover. Remember 
at this specific date, in this month, how God, when you slaughtered a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost, when you were still enslaved in Egypt, and and when you did that, how the angel of death passed over. But everyone who didn't do that, their firstborn died. Do you remember that? Don't forget. And so this was an annual party, celebration to remember. This happened when it came to first fruits. That God is our provider. That He is the one from whom the harvest comes. So every year at the first of the harvest, there was a remembrance. God is our provider. This isn't just a rhythm of life. This is something God is doing. At Pentecost, that God is our joy. That He is a hope. It was this moment to remember that 50 days after leaving Egypt, From leaving slavery, God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave the law. That God is our joy. That He is our provider. That He is our hope. And so do this in remembrance. Have this celebration as part of the rhythm so that it's passed on from generation to generation. They also built monuments. Stones stacked on top of one another. Jacob in Genesis 28 built a stone altar to the Lord because God had said to him in that place, I am with you and I will watch over you and wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And so God called it Bethel. That's what Jacob called it because God promised His presence. And so there was this stone altar. The same thing happened when Joshua crossed the Jordan River. When it was flooded and and God parted it like He parted the Red Sea and, and they walked across it. And then God commanded them to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. See, stone altars, these monuments outlast us. After we're dead and gone, it's saying God was faithful in this moment here and I need to remember it and I want my children to remember it. I want them to know how God has been faithful in the past. So when they have doubts, when the world shouts lies, remember, do we not remember how quickly we forget, how quickly I forget of God's past faithfulness? And then how do we apply it? What does this mean then for us? What do I need to understand from God's past faithfulness for my present need? Consider your your present situation. Your need in light of God's past faithfulness. Like, are are you in a moment, a, a challenge, a sight where you're like, the need feels greater than what you have to offer. There's challenges that you're facing. There's reality. And there's a sense of saying, do we remember and do we understand? Do we just look at the situation around us? Or are we looking to God? And I think the opportunity we have is to consider an application what would it look like for you to make something to help you remember your family? There were festivals. There were monuments. 
Like, what does it look like for you personally or your family? Is it a a photograph that can be hung on the wall? Is it a craft? Is it a something that you build together as a family, an heirloom, something that represents God has been faithful to us. And what has that been? I've heard numerous testimonies from those who have been sick or struggled with childbearing or, or, or finances or so many different things where God has been faithful. How has God been faithful? And how do, do you have this around you in a way? to help you remember, so that every time you see it, you say, God was faithful. Because the doubts are going to come into your mind. A new situation is going to come up, and you're going to see that thing, and just like the children are going to ask, why is that there? It becomes yet another opportunity. Like, let me tell you what God did. We need to remind our own hearts, and we need to remind our children in one another. So what, what does that look like? I, I would really encourage you this week to talk together with, you, with your spouse, with your, your children, with your friends. What does it look like? How has God been faithful, number one? And how then do we memorialize this to remember God's faithfulness as a reminder to us so we don't forget? To remind our hearts. This is how we exercise faith. This is how we strengthen our faith. Not by just doing something, but by remembering what God has already done. Do we remember? Do we understand? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, when I think about it in my own life and how quickly I can forget in the incredible ways that you have been faithful to me and to our family, and yet how quickly my heart runs to fear rather than faith. Lord, would you help us to remember? Would you help us to understand? And in Jesus' name, amen.